Hello, welcome. This is the History of Science Society's Centennial Podcast Series, partnered with the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I'm Fatifan. Joining us today are three wonderful scholars: Helen Tilly from Northwestern, Gabriela Soto La Vega from Harvard, and Harun Kuchik from UPenn. Thank you so much for being here today. We will be talking about a fascinating topic. One that goes to the heart of thinking and the writing about the history of science, about the big picture, big questions, such as how do we think about history of science when we see it from new and perhaps unusual perspectives, from studying the history of science in Africa, Latin America, and the Ottoman Empire. What does it mean to globalize history of science? Let me ask you, our guests. How did you first become interested in your area of research, and when you just started in the field of history science in the late 1990s and the early 2000s, I suppose? What was your area of research like? So, Gabriela, why don't you start? Yes, thank you so much, Fatih, for the invitation, and I'm thrilled to be here. I became interested in my area of research when I was a graduate student, but I wasn't. Sure, what that area of research would become. I was a grad student at UC San Diego in the mid '90s, and as I detailed in my preface to my book, Jungle Laboratories, I went to Mexico, and someone there made an, a comment saying that this was the place where the first viable oral contraceptive had been discovered, and I was stunned that I didn't know this history or that I had ever heard of this history before. And how could I, who was studying Mexico, not have known of something so pivotal? So that's led me to question not just the type of histories we were reading, but what histories were actually allowed to be written, and when they were, what perspectives did they take? So it was really hard. I feel in the mid '90s and late '90s for someone who was very junior trying to. Create a different version of what history of science could look like in Latin America, and I'll give you just one example. When I would propose papers at conferences, I would usually be sent to the Sunday Remnant panel, <laughs> which is where people didn't know where to put me. I was talking about peasants, but I wasn't talking about land rights. I was talking about them speaking about chemistry, even though they weren't scientists. And the same would happen in areas like HSS. Where would you place someone like me, who was speaking about peasants, speaking about science? And I think things have changed a lot, thankfully, in the last thirty years. But the mid '90s, trying to carve a, a space to have a different voice as a very junior scholar was difficult. Yeah, I hope that we don't put you on Sunday morning anymore. <laughs> yes, I hope. I hope you don't. <laughs> But、uh, anyways,、uh, Helen, would you like to share your story with us? Sure, and in some ways, place-based experiences also shaped me. I grew up in a family that was very historically minded and full of music and literature and poetry from around the world,、um, and also very interested in history of social movements. So when I got to college at the University of Chicago. I had already lived in several different places across the U.S. and also lived in England, and I was fortunate to be able to concentrate 
in a multidisciplinary major that bridged history of science and environmental history. And environmental history then was pursuing somewhat different methods. Um, but I also connected it to the history of social movements. So my undergraduate training taught me to follow questions, not disciplines. And that was really formative because it meant that when I started to meet people from African activist networks in the 1990s, I was immediately struck by some of the connections between other parts of the world, um, whether they were dealing with environmental issues or agriculture or climatic changes, or they were dealing with imported expertise that was trying to tell people what to do in their landscapes or with their bodies or with their institutions of higher education. And so I started piecing together transnational histories sort of before they had become all the rage in the history of science. And by the time I got to graduate school, um, there too, you know, the, the history of science was still dominated by a few countries. So it was Britain, France, Germany, and the United States. And if you dealt with problems that circulated, you dealt with them from the point of view of, of powerful parts of the world. And only slowly has area studies scholarship, and I use that neutrally, I mean, part, studies on parts of the world, different continents, different oceanic regions, have they started to bridge a kind of outside-in narrative about how expertise is circulated and how many ideas in different parts of the world that have a great deal of historical resilience have shaped dominant patterns. But you have to really understand the languages and the, and the histories of those places to make sense of that. And so I've been fortunate to be able to be trained in African and imperial and U.S. histories of science while also bridging environmental history. I'm, I, as you can see, I'm a kind of grab bag historian. I love to bridge and connect. And it's like quilt making. You really stitch things together in ways right. that fit. I like grab bag history. It's just like uh, if you have a bag of candies, you want to have a different can you know, kinds of candies. You can <laughs> surprises and uh, uh, different tastes and so on and so forth. And uh, what about Haroon? I started in, in the early 2000s. I would say my journey probably started when I was in college. I was the kind of person who thought that becoming a philosopher was the best use of one's time in this world. Until I hit senior year, I was reading Hegel. I wasn't getting it. And right at the same time, I was reading Alexis de Tocqueville. And I was just impressed. And I still teach this to this day. How he could read a social structure through um, inheritance laws. And I was like, I want to be able to do something like that. So I went into history. I came, came back to Turkey, uh, took a degree in Ottoman history from Sabancı University, where I was encouraged by actually a number of people to uh, focus on the history of science because of the kind of training I had at St. John's College when, where I did my undergraduate degree. So I did, and I wrote a master's degree on uh, the historiography of astronomy, especially in the Ottoman context. And while doing that, I kind of was very influenced by Bob Westman's articles and I applied to work with him. And, you know, in hindsight, you know, I realized, you know, perhaps the main thing that drew me to Bob Westman, and this is going to be about the, the way my field is shaped, is that, you know, Bob Westman at that time and to a certain degree still to this time was a contextualist in a field that's largely internalist. That is, you know, history of astronomy. What do you do? You 
crank some numbers. You know, there, it's a history of, uh, it's an exact science. But Bob Westman did it in a different way. And I would say, you know, back then, the field of Islamic science generally and Ottoman science also was largely internalist. And I would say that's probably what has changed um, in the last 20, 25 years. Um, it has become a lot you know, more sensitive to context, you know, a, lot, a lot more regular historians rather than just specialists who have the philological and the scientific skills go into the study of the, of the Ottoman Empire, the sciences, that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you probably had to thank Hegel for your switch of your interest. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes. so many people are indebted to Hegel, uh, negatively or positively. But anyway, so, um, so did you find, that is a question for all of you, did you find the existing perspectives or approaches at the time unsatisfactory that were you happy with it? I mean, you, some of you mentioned that already, but, uh, you know, we just follow it up on that. If so, what were the main problems or challenges that you faced at that time and that you felt that you had to develop your own perspectives or approaches? So how did you try to address those problems that you encountered? So, Helen, why don't you uh, start then? I mean, the question is also context-specific. I entered graduate school at UC Berkeley and I ended up doing all my coursework there and then transferring to Oxford where African studies and imperial history were stronger. Um, But at Berkeley, when I started, I had just come out of organizing with young people around the world and in community groups in the U.S. around environmental justice issues. So I found the history of science to be oddly out of touch with where policymaking around science, technology, and medicine had hit, and the history that was being told in institutions of global governance around intellectual property and around bioprospecting and biopiracy, the stealing of knowledge of other peoples. So there was, I, was, I couldn't find a way in. Um, History of physics was very dominant at UC Berkeley, and then early modern history of science was dominant. And so I took anthro classes, and I went to UC Santa Cruz and and took history of consciousness classes, and I did comparative African and Asian environmental history classes, and I did sociology classes and political ecology. So I I was sort of moving out of history. And it was funny because the senior colleagues in the history of science, the eminent people in HSS, the History of Science Society, would sometimes call the work that I was doing in the scholarship silly or trendy. Those were literal terms that they used. Trendy meaning not worthy of much intellectual attention. But I think gradually the study of science and empire was the bridge. And so many, many books started to be published and it was unavoidable. Um, I think historians of science could no longer avoid the legacies of empire in the realms of, of many scientific disciplines. And that's how I began to find some intellectual community. And I also found that the conversations in African studies were philosophically, for my purposes, more sophisticated. They understood issues of translation and of bottom-up epistemologies and of gender and race in better ways than the people who had been focused on German or French or U.S. historiographies because they were piecing together often dominant stories. So I stayed in, um, but it was always a struggle. Right. And I, I do share this experience 
And so I guess to some extent, because my own research started out in the same uh, kind of a direction and perspective and then changed over time. So I guess for many of us of that same kind of time frame generation, maybe some of us experienced this kind of a, a you know, change of uh, approaches and uh, so on. So, but uh, Harun, why don't you go next and share your story with us or your thoughts with us? I have changed my opinion on a lot of things over time, but two things have kind of remained constant, you know, the kind of like the way the, the flags I want to wave in my discipline. And one has to do with, I would say, German Orientalism uh, that is quite dominant in the study of non-Western anywhere, I would say. And I can, if I was to give a very brief definition of German Orientalism, I would say it's seeing cultures or seeing entire very large groups of people as edifices of texts. And what I learned during my research was that a lot of the actors that we study don't have as good a grasp of these texts as we do today when we're looking back with you know just excellent libraries, excellent archives. They didn't have access to any of those things. So I think you know uh, some some kind of like moderation of that attitude of like textualism is is one of the things that I have tried for. The second thing, and this is I think very prominent in the case of Islam, is and that's understanding religion as kind of like an a stand-in for culture. Like, you know, um, if you're studying an Islamic study, society, everything has to be Islamic. And this just leads to a very, I would say, narrow understanding of who people were, you know, what they did. And as a consequence, you know, there are these, I think, unhealthy attitudes towards religion and culture in general, where you think of, say, like Islam, depending on where you're standing, either as like the, the biggest hindrance that a society can encounter or you say it's the foundation of all public life. And I didn't think either was true. I didn't think so like years ago. I still don't think so. I would say those were, those have been kind of like the persistent challenges of the field. And I, I think you know, things are much better now than they used to be, but this is kind of where I am. Mm-hmm. So just a quick follow up, like what kind of a approaches had you adopted to face these challenges or maybe i don't know if overcome or to at least to problematize these challenges or, or problems well i guess you know i have an unusual training as in like you know, i work on the ottoman empire but by pedigree i'm a european so that's uh, that does give me some different perspective on ottoman science i would say that's probably one thing and more recently i would say i have kind of grown wary of an overly cultural approach to science too. So I have more like adopted a more social and economic approach to the history of science, which I find much more comfortable at least for the kind of work that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Great. And uh, Gabriella? I think for me, one of the one of the challenges was going against this idea of a tropicalization of the rest of the world coming from the Northern Hemisphere and seeing this almost universalizing truth about the rest of the world um, in which you could apply anachronistic ideas to present day uh, regions of the world, but also especially in the 19th and 20th century, when we see the diffusion of science happening and this idea of of a tropical (laughs) space where science is being embraced and, and how that was continuing to to the time period where I was as a, both as a graduate student and as a junior scholar. And this was really jarring for me because my father was a philologist, but not only was he a professor, but he was also a staunch Mexican nationalist. So I grew up 
knowing that the center of the world was in Mexico and there was just no other way around it. And so to enter a, a field of study in which a region of the world that I knew so well was displaced as being really uh, ancillary or even if it even made it to the table of discussion was really surprising to me. And I think I was very fortunate in both my upbringing and that I was studying Latin American history and was grounded in it and could understand a Latin America, as we call it now, that existed before the arrival of Europeans. And that really gave me the intellectual toolkit to be able to challenge and understand some ideas. So the being able to really burrow down into regional histories and area histories and then incorporate histories of science was very beneficial to me. And in terms of how to find an intellectual community, I found it really hard in the 90s and early 2000s. So I was presenting in anthropology conferences. I was presenting at Latin American studies associations, at Mexicanist conferences, at enviro environmental um, uh, studies conferences, history of medicine. I was trying to really find my niche. And the hardest one was HSS, actually, for oh. to, to break in. And I think I, think I, I should uh, quickly add that I think things have changed. But this was the hardest nut to crack because I think the ideas of what history of science, there were many ideas and individuals who were still policing the borders of what history of science was when I was a junior scholar, which made HSS probably the most difficult to engage with as a junior scholar. Thank you. And that's interesting. I don't know if I, because we are kind of coming from similar uh, kind of situations. When I started out as a historian of, so to speak, East Asian science, uh, there were hardly anybody uh, basically in the, in the field. So when I came to History Science Society meetings, and so there maybe there were a few people, uh, maybe one panel or you know, <laughs> or something like that on uh, this kind of topics. And so, so I share uh, the kind of uh, experience as you guys are uh, mentioning uh, here. So, and so here, which leads to our next question then. So, what is it like today? If we were talking about, say, our experience, um, you know, being a junior professor um, in science, now what is it like today? So, what has changed, basically, and then what are the most exciting developments in your area of research and beyond that? What you have noticed, things have changed, as Gabriella said, things have changed. So, what do you think are the most important changes since you started, Gabriella? Why don't we just start with you, and then we'll continue. I really think that history of science is going through this really exciting moment in which the very structures of how we have built the discipline of history of science are being questioned. They're, they're not being thrown down, but they're being questioned, which I think is a lot more powerful and much more important. Because to try to understand how the very ways in which histories of science have been told and why, I think the, and how these stories have been told, um, and a lot of it has to do with this real uh, interesting group of junior scholars that are coming, that are building on ideas and taking it at, as junior scholars much farther, which I think was really needed. And I'm speaking here, for example, indigenous knowledges, which 30 years ago, I mean, forget it, that would not have been, uh, or it would have been a very rigid way of understanding what indigenous knowledges were. 
other than human histories and how they are integrated into histories of science. And I think the environment is becoming increasingly important, but in ways not in how we have described histories of, of environment, but bringing together multiple uh, ways of seeing the world. So worlding environment in different ways. So, um, and I also feel that um, history, to go back to HSS, it's a much more welcoming society. And this has to do with a diversity of perspectives, but also a diversity of the spaces that people are working from and how they're coming to HSS. There's still work to be done, but I think it's a, a much more exciting and innovative um, society, but it's also reflecting history of science as a whole. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we're a welcoming community or we're, we have yeah. improved. Oh, most definitely. <laughs> I, 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 didn't, I didn't want you to think that I, that I said the opposite. No, 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 no. That's perfectly <laughs> fine. That's right. So, sounds good. Sounds good. And uh, so, um, Helen, would you like to follow up? Sure. And I think we can apply some lessons that, that sociology of science and knowledge teaches us to our professional societies. History of Science Society, our different African or, or Middle Eastern studies or Latin American studies, like these all these fields of expertise all have gatekeepers. They have people who try to sustain across generations intellectual traditions and stories about the world and ways of seeing the world and understanding and explaining the world. And I think history is in some ways quite conservative. Because if you go to universities in the 1980s and 1990s, concepts of folk knowledge, indigenous knowledge, Aboriginal insight was pervasive. It just wasn't in history departments. I taught in the Environmental Science Policy and Management program as a graduate student at Berkeley, and that was all we talked about. Um, we talked about coercive conservation and the imposition of environmental regimes in different parts of the world as a vehicle often on colonialism. So parts of Southeast Asia and forestry regulations, parts of Africa, national park associations, like these histories are connected to kind of top-down land management and extractive economies, meaning what can you pull, what value can you pull out of the land? And it's been surprising to see how long it takes historians to take up some of these questions and consider them legitimate. And so for those of us who do persist and, and maybe might be squeaky wheels, you know, you don't always feel the wind beneath your wings. Sometimes you find your colleagues irritated at you because you're the one who's always saying there are real power inequalities in the world. And so entire continents get left out. And that I completely agree with Gabriella. If you are in academia in the United States, U.S. history dominates and U.S. history is a construct. I mean, it, you could easily call it Mexican history up through the 19th century. And so the st students learn things through a distorted lens already. And so the world sees things through a distorted lens because of these power inequalities. So to try to convey that across generations using concepts that allow for bridge building to different parts of the world is very hard. Richard Grove's book on green imperialism was extremely important when I was coming of age. Aravi Rajan's work on South Asia and forestry was extremely important. 
And yet it's telling that, and we have East Asian examples too, but these books are not being acknowledged. And there's a level of difficulty in piecing some of these stories together, especially when you're dealing with non-textual evidence that is often invisible, that historians of science really often in different generations may not understand how hard it is to do some of this work. Yeah, I think those are very valid and important points. And Haron, you have something to say on this issue, I'm sure. So I can only add, I agree with everything that Gabriela and Helen have said um, and everything you have said. And I guess I also want to highlight that, you know, this narrow focus on the West and, you know, on the modern United States, for example, has created a damaging, harmful misunderstanding of these places also, right? So, I mean, I remember, you know, when I was a graduate student, you know, the world history textbooks would have like chapters on, say, like the first human settlements, but, for example, the, the Protestant Reformation would be at the same level with the, you know, human settlement. So there is like a very, I would say, unfounded and very idealistic understanding of the West that's also being sustained through narratives like this. And what I find very promising in the field right now is, is a more materialist understanding of science and a kind of deflationary process. And what I'm really looking forward to is, you know, instead of, taking analytic tools that were developed for Western science and applying them elsewhere and seeing them not work, I think some of us, many of us, maybe all of us will come up with analytics that can also create a more healthy understanding of what Western science actually was and what it actually did. And I I find, I think that's going to be like a tipping point and that's what I'm looking forward to most. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So now... So we talked about um, like very exciting uh, developments. So in your view, though, what are the main um, intellectual ch- challenges, like intellectual challenges today that still exist and that still bother you, right? So how can we meet these challenges? Like new approaches, new perspectives, new methodologies, or new institutional development, like infrastructurally speaking, um, and so on and so forth. So why don't we start with uh, Helen this time? I think the challenge always when you take the world seriously is to reflect the world as accurately as possible. And like Harun, I was actually trained as a Europeanist and an early modernist first. And so I actually think training people in European history to respect the world as it exists in its own right, and not just as a platform for dominant perspectives to be disseminated, that's one key challenge. But there's a flip side to that. The, it's, it's getting people who do African history, Latin American history, or Asian history to re- recognize that some of the key categories, including a category like Western science, is never sufficient it's always a challenging category. It should always come with a kind of an asterisk because Western is a geographical connotation or denotation. And yet, if you say how Western is Western science, it opens up an entire can of worms because in fact, it's a transnational phenomenon. It can, the story of intellectual innovations across the centuries in the place we now consider Europe or the place we consider the United States or even North America, the genealogies of these ideas and disciplines cannot be told without taking the world seriously. 
it provides inadequate, insufficient answers to that question. So I think the the complexity of the world is the biggest challenge. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So, and later I'll follow up on this point about taking the world seriously. And so, but let's move on to Harum. What do you think are the main intellectual challenges? And do you think that any particular methodology or perspectives or institutional changes might help us uh, meet these challenges? <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, well, unions, right? Uh, labor unions for <laughs> academics. I think that, that's, that's like number one. Okay. <laughs> but I, I guess like, you know, number two is, I don't know, like, I mean, history of science. So many of us are of a generation where we had to push really hard to get what we study to be accepted as like history of science, right? And it so turns out that we're now like the load-bearing generation of, of the discipline. And I think, you know, if we relax those muscles, I wonder, you know, what things we could do, what things we could say, because I would say, you know, and um, Helen has said this, Gabriela has said this, and it's a much more welcoming field. It's got, you know, a lot more openness than it used to. And I'm just, I guess, you know, thinking about, you know, where that leaves us when we don't have to show that resistance anymore. And I'm saying this partly because, you know, we have all seen the scientific revolution bubble pop, right? It was an inflationary kind of rhetoric. And it also created like inflationary counter rhetorics of the kind of work that was being done elsewhere. And now, again, like I think we're in a deflationary mode right now where we realize that a lot of people who have received no credit whatsoever, have been interested in nature, have observed nature, have written things about nature. So if that's going to be our like starting point, then I guess, you know, where do we go from there? Um, and I think that's kind of like, you know, what I'm thinking about right now. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and here is actually a kind of a, a harking back to Gabriella's point that people who are somehow not being recorded in the way traditional historiography or history writing. And so, Gabriela, you're in perfect position to, to uh, continue this conversation. So, Yeah, thank you so much, Fatih. And I just want to add to what both Harun and Helen said. And I think for me, the biggest challenge on a global scale right now is the rise of ethno-nationalism and the increased policing of history. And I think that just at this moment where I really feel that history of science as a discipline was really opening and embracing. We seem to see there's this stepping back at a at a global scale in terms of what is considered history and what is the type of history that can be taught from the policing of textbook to the policing of seminars and universities and the questioning of scholars and that to me is right now uh, the most dangerous uh, challenge that we're facing. But to get to a smaller scale, (laughs) another challenge is one of archives, Um, because archives have been a space of domination, and archives have been a process of selection and of recreating empire uh, on a microcosm level. So many of the stories that need to be told, we do not have, as both Helen and Harun have already said, we don't have the physical evidence of stories that exist. So that's a challenge. How do we as historians write histories when the evidence that we're looking for is not there or is difficult to find? The other thing is that I feel 
more, most definitely different from when I was trained, languages are not seen as important in the training of graduate students. That there is this demand, and, and I'll just interject this, and I've said this before, but I once asked Rainey Dastin what was the best advice she could give me. And she said, learn as many languages as you can. And she was absolutely right. And I think we need to take the learning of languages seriously, not just as a moment to pass an, a grad exam. And the last thing I'll, I'll add is just how we structure the training of graduates in the curriculum, who takes what seminars or what seminars there are given valence, who's going to take, for example, race and development science that I teach, right? If I have 21 students, but only one is a historian of science, is that really changing the field? So I think we have both macro level problems at a global scale, but also systemic problems from um, taking classes to languages and other ways of training students. Yeah, all these are excellent points. So I have one kind of an intellectual point, and then um, I will ask you how, you know, from the society's point um, perspective, how can we do to help address these issues as well? But uh, one intellectual point, this is a very hard question. Okay, so, but you guys um, talked about taking the world seriously and so on and so forth, right? So now I have a question for you then. So I want you to use no more than three sentences. Okay, you can cheat, but not cheating too much, okay? So to comment on the notion of a globalizing history of science, how do we take the world seriously? And what does that mean? And what kind of a product would be different from the kind of history science we have uh, currently? And so on. So does it, does it even make sense, like globalizing history science? Okay. So three sentences or a little bit more, but not too many. Okay. So Helen, since you're the one who first mentioned taking the world seriously, I'll start with you, Helen. I'm counting. One, two, three. So, no, just kidding. So. A wonderful exercise is to decenter Europe, to invoke uh, Deepesh uh, Chakrabarti's provincializing Europe. If you see the world from another vantage point, it helps put dominant perspectives in dialogue with a plurality of voices and places. And that's crucial, and it's a thought experiment we should encourage everyone to take. Good. That's short and concise and beautiful. And, you know, I have to work on my arithmetic. I haven't done it since my elementary school. I don't know how many sentences you have used, but, <laughs> but anyway, so uh, Harun, you want to go next? I would say globalizing history of science is about first distinguishing the global from the truly local because you know those things I think have like exist in tandem even today. And two, and this is my unusual understanding of global, I guess, in the global history of science. Um, I think globalizing history of science is about finding what was common among geographies because the common is the global. And my favorite example here is like you know, to think about something like genres. Um, and all the almanac is a, is a global genre. Go to any city, year 1700, you're going to find almanacs. And that's, I think, a much, global, much more global attitude towards, like, say, the history of astronomy than saying history of astronomy and then complaining about not finding astronomy somewhere the way you understand it from a certain perspective. Great. And so, Gabriella... So three sentences, that is a Three challenge. sentences, yes. <laughs> okay. So um, I think globalizing history of science 
isn't simply about expanding geographies or extending chronologies. It's or doing comparative history because then you put things on a balance. But rather, I think it's about adding inclusive methodologies to contest that uh, not only one region of the world was accepted as a producer of knowledge or that ideas traveled in a unidirectional um, way. I think globalizing histories of science in particular is about, as I said earlier, contesting the very structures that allowed such a narrow definition of history of science to persist for so long. Good. Well put, well put. So what can we as a society then, what can we do to help or strengthen your field of research or your vision, as you just laid out, uh, your vision of globalizing history of science? What can we do other than give you a lot of money or research resources? (laughs) So, uh, Harun, you want to go first? I saw you raise your hand, so... I do, yes. I think here, like, you know, I'd like to say something about intellectual diversity of the history of science society. I think this is very important, and this has to be done by a like a deliberative body. Like, I, it's not going to happen naturally because, just like any other field, our field also has like trends that can overpower a lot of things, especially when uh, the job market is skewed a certain way. So I think making sure that different geographies, periods, and types of science are represented both in the in our meetings and in the journal is very important. And it's not trivial work. I think it's hard work to do to manage that. So I think that's like one thing that I would say. Great. And uh, we're, um, we're, I think we're having working hard on that and we'll continue to improve. Thank you. And um, Gabriela? Yeah, so I think one thing that could be done is including more panels in the society that include, as Harun was saying, uh, a roster of geographies. So you're bringing together Africanist, Latin Americanist, South and East Asianist and Middle Eastern scholars on a similar panel to be speaking about something at the same time in front of an audience to create dialogues, which is something that I started when I came to Harvard to create these workshops to bring people from different parts of the world. And it has been so beneficial to my own thinking. But also, I think we need to make it feasible for those who find it hard to travel to HSS or to have their publications made. I think now with Zoom, we open the doors to those who may not have visas or who may not have the means or funding to be able to come to a society meeting, but have the intellectual power and they're just not being heard because those avenues aren't being open to them. So I think to make virtual meetings allows for a plethora of ideas from people who physically may not be able to make it either because, as I said, visa problems or disabilities. So I think that's something that that can be done. Yeah, that's something actually we had also been um, trying hard to do. And to your first point about kind of more trans-regional dialogue. I think certainly we, we can do that um, just by promoting it uh, through uh, conference programming and, uh, you know, putting our intellectual um, discourses along these lines. And uh, the other is also, we are also, as a society, we are reimagining our annual conferences and to see if there are ways that we can be more inclusive and accessible to people who may not be able to travel and so on, especially travel there are many, many, um, you know, difficulties, and also there are many, many kind of impact on the environment and so on and so forth. So there are all sorts of things that 
I think we can uh, consider and take into consideration and explore new possibilities and so on. So Helen, would you like to follow up? I'm thinking of this question, not just in terms of the History of Science Society, but in terms of all of the institutions of higher education that we're affiliated with in different parts of the world, too. So I do inventories a lot, inventories of what I don't know or what is not a priority in my university. Or, you know, I also do studies of of money and funding and what, what gets the money. And what I notice is that... And this is going back to what Gabriella said about the rise of ethno-nationalism. There are deliberate areas where people are ignorant, um, deliberately created. Like there's a lot of ignorance of African history, a, a tremendous amount. And so when that's a given, sometimes people seek immediately to just add Africa. And so that actually poses a lot of problems. Because when you just add Africa, but you use history of science categories or the problems that a European trained historian of science thinks are important, you often import into extraordinarily good scholarship, misleading assumptions. And so I, I think we need to constantly be doing inventories of whose analytic categories matter and are get imported in cross territories. Why, and this, this goes back to, and we could all talk about um, you know, the rise of global English, the dominance of certain languages, diplomatic languages. I mean, because no matter what part of the world, like I'm working in Yoruba sources, you know, Yoruba is a dominant language in Nigeria, and it's not the only one, it's one of hundreds. And so when you have diplomatic languages, Kiswahili, those languages come to be a stand-in and they have power too. So I think that one of the things that I tell my students a lot is the U.S. is 4% of the world's population. So even the best intentioned intellectual communities in the U.S. can re-inscribe unequal intellectual dynamics in the ways they see the world, the ways they define problems in the world, and even the social movements addressing the world. And so, and I write a lot about the history of U.S. social movements, and I'll think about Alondra Nelson's work on the Black Panther Party. You know, some of these books sometimes are essential counterpoints to thinking about, you know, what were the movements in South Africa and what were the movements in Uganda and what were the movements in India? And so power and political economy have to be part of the analysis, including in our studies of ourselves. I love ignorance studies, so I'll return back to what, what don't we know? How does ignorance get reproduced? Um, and how do certain topics, like Islamophobia is something I try to teach um, in my own classes, how do the problems of a stereotype, you might say, get created that are okay stereotypes that people passively accept because it's easy. And how do you deconstruct them? And going deeper back into, I personally love going deeper back in time. I'm a 19th and 20th century historian, but I teach usually starting in the 15th century. And I read as much as possible deeper. And I go to talks that cover deeper time scales because I always am struck by my own ignorance. I mean, I'm just ignorant. You know, I'm not going to know those languages or the, the methods that, that reveal those insights. And no solo artist can. I think that's going back to Rainey Dastan's advice of learning languages. That's extraordinarily good advice. But we can also collaborate 
across linguistic barriers and recognize power inequalities. And that can generate more robust work because it's not a solo artist model. Right. And this actually comes back to Gabrielle's point too about transregional dialogue. That by talking to people who specialize in different area, that actually kind of generated new ideas and the new conversations that are actually helpful for you know what we do in our own more specialized area and so on. So languages, I mean collaboration. I think historians should do more collaboration, if you ask me. But. <laughs> But especially if we want to take the world seriously, that seems to be the only way to go. I mean, how else can one do kind of globally meaningful history in this way? So I do have a question for you, and this is a real challenge now. So, so it sounds like you largely so far have agreed with each other. How could that be? So is there anything you disagree with each other? I want to hear it. So now, okay. So I, I wouldn't say disagree, but anyway, so but, but do, what do you think that, I know, listen to each other's uh, talk and so on. Now, um, does that generate a new questions for you that, you know, maybe say, if you feel that some kind of like, so I'm, I'm, I'm putting this out here, for example, that say we haven't really mentioned even the word, which is interesting for uh, this our conversation post-colonial. And that has been very popular and dominant kind of a framework or, or conversation for a whole generation. And it's interesting that so far, after 48 minutes, we haven't even, that word hasn't come up yet. So th- does that mean anything or just... Or it's just not you're thinking about, or or it's just that that kind of a perspective approach has kind of doesn't fulfill the kind of work you want to do, and so so what does that mean? Who wants to go first? I'll go first, I guess. No, I would say you know at least in my case, so the Ottoman Empire, known as an empire, is quite unlike many other empires. You could say maybe it's closest to China, maybe you could say it's closest to India. But basically, you know, like I can't do post-colonial because I work specifically on the parts of the Ottoman Empire that was never colonized by any other empire than the Ottoman Empire. And my archives are imperial archives because, you know, Ottoman archives are imperial archives. So it's not post, I can't do post-colonial work very well. I also can't do post-imperial work very well because, again, like, you know, it's uh, it's not that kind of empire. So I would, I guess, politely opt out of the, the post-colonial discussion for that reason. That's very interesting. Now, let me ask you a question, though. Now, if people say post-colonial or post-coloniality, instead of a formal colonial setting, that does the very constitution of power relations between different cultures, societies, and the um, geographic spaces that would put the Ottoman Empire in certain kind of a structure of a coloniality? Or, or you feel that that's still not a sufficient approach to answer the kind of questions you want to ask about history science in the Ottoman Empire? I would say there, I mean, I, this is coloniality adjacent, uh, but not quite coloniality. I have perfect faith in people's ability to to make their countries miserable for themselves without the intervention of any outside force. 
But one thing I would say, and this is going to be like about capitalism, I think there is much wisdom in Trotsky's idea of uneven and combined development. That is, you know, things need to be bad in some places for things to be good in other places. I believe in that. I don't think that relationship necessarily has to be colonial. You can call it colonial adjacent, but you know, I think that's kind of what I would say. Like, you know, Ottoman Empire, after a certain point, it's a poor, it's a poor country. It's been a poor country for like three, four hundred years at least. And that does things to you. Like, if you are poor for that long, you change, you become something else altogether. And I don't think you need an outside intervention for that to happen. And it's very resilient. Poverty is extremely resilient. It's more resilient than wealth. Thank you so much. And so, Gabriela, you want to take this up? Yes, I think to use the term post-colonial in Latin America is, is problematic because the methodologies that we think about when we think about, it's, it's let me, more than problematic, it's useful, but it, it does not serve to completely explain the region. And we're speaking about a different empire when we talk about post-coloniality. We're speaking about the British Empire. Usually the, um, we're speaking about the early writings that were coming from South Asia that don't necessarily map on well to the experience of Latin America. So starting from that vantage point, what were the questions that the post-colonialists were speaking about? What was beyond power, beyond these ideas of self-assertion? What is it that was important? And I, I want to take something up that Harun just said, and I think it might be more useful than thinking about post-colonial, what allows a region to remain poor? And uh, I used to uh, I used to teach a history of Mexico class, and I would begin the first day by asking, "Why is Mexico considered a poor country?" And this was really a question that we would go back to at the end of the semester and see if students had changed their definition of this of poverty, and to try to understand the structures that had allowed wealthy nation to be considered poor. So linked to poverty are questions of violence, are questions of inequality. I mean, you just kind of keep going. So I think uh, Harun said something <laughs> I've long, you know, to talk about post-coloniality, we need to talk about development. We need to talk about um, these other issues. And I feel that we have given the mantle of post-colonialism. It's been held for so long that we may have blinded ourselves to other definitions of seeing the world. Not to say that it's not useful, but I think that we need to be looking at other rubrics. Great. And uh, Helen? I've been critical of history, so let me offer a defense of history. I mean, one of the reasons I went into history is that my I find it the most, to use a loaded term, rigorous discipline because it has to achieve a level of evidence that's incredibly fine-grained for an argument to be accepted. And I think one of my mild frustrations with much of the work that ha adopts the label post-colonialism or post-coloniality is that it still is a way, it's kind of surfing waves of, of historical dynamics and doesn't get that richness for specific places at specific times that I think is necessary to explain the world. And I also think historians take 
our explanations very, very seriously. And it's fine-grained, qualitative, hard-won insights that sociology and political science and even economic history, when it's in an economic department or economics department, they don't always strive to achieve. But I find historians do strive to achieve that. So I would I would say that empires and it's the global histories of empires have done a good job of showing that they were not all the same, that they were not all equally militaristic, they were not all equally exclusionary, they were not all equally um, oppressive, and that those insights actually help explain social dynamics that you see in these empires and economic dynamics that you see, including changing forms of productive labor, extractions from the land. And so taking empire seriously as a legal unit of global history matters a great deal because it's one among many legal units. Cities are legal units. States are legal units. And then you recognize that legal history actually matters a great deal. One of my frustrations in popular rhetoric and even some social movements is the desire to find all original sin in empire. And so nation states kind of get a free ride. <laughs> and yet you can find far more surveillance, far more human experimentation and social experimentation and engineering in powerful nation states than you find necessarily in some marginal colonial territories. And that is important to recognize. It doesn't morally let empires off the hook. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't understand the militarism and the violence, which can also be an intellectual violence of empires. But it means that we have to recognize that even social movements are not always a kind of story of heroes and evildoers, um, because social movements can get it wrong, too. And so we have actually talked about Orientalism, and I did mention um, Chakrabarti's provincializing that, Europe. Right. And yeah. so I think I think it's actually very much part of the conversation now, and I think that's a credit to the history of science more broadly. I've learned it from other people. Kapil Raj is important to me. Simon Schaefer. I'm trying to think of Jorge Canizares Esquera in Latin America was really important to me when I was coming of age around nation, nature, and empire. But one of the things that I think we, and this may be something we disagree with, I think liberal institutions, and I think we're all affiliated with liberal institutions in the United States, uh, allow falsehoods to be accepted as real because it just keeps the wheels running. And there's a kind of authoritarian dynamic in institutions of higher education if I may say so, in the belly of the beast in the U.S. <laughs> and so that authoritarianism rarely gets called out. And I'm not talking about interpersonal dynamics. I'm talking about how, whether we are acknowledging what our boards of trustees are doing, what investors are doing, what even phrases like believe science, which erases radical inequalities of power, it pretends that the United States has had, you know, let's say the National Science Foundation, an era or the CDC, an era of unadulterated 
correct knowledge that can be adulterated by fascism. And I think those are actually liberal myths. Great. So all this is really insightful comments. So I have a quiz, uh, not for you, for the listeners, uh, our dear listeners. So for each episode, we have a quiz. So today's quiz is who started the series Science and the Civilization in China? So this person was originally a British biochemist, and then he became interested in history of Chinese science, and he started this in the 1950s, and it eventually became this huge mammoth enterprise. So please email your answer to morgan at hs, uh, org. This is morgan, M-O-R-G-A-N, at hssonline.org. So the first person who submits the correct answer will receive a special prize from HSS. I actually don't know what this prize is, but it's very special. So we will announce the winner on the society's webpage and the social media. In concluding this conversation, I would like to ask each of you to share one wish for HSS in advance of its 100th birthday. So we do not have a birthday cake here or candles for you to blow, but you can still make a wish. So who wants to go first? Harun, how don't you make a wish? Sure. I mean, long life, health, and happiness. What else is there to wish wish for anybody, right? But I guess, you know, one thing that's that's coming up that we're already feeling is there is going to be a very delicate balancing act between identifying this society as an intellectual community and identifying this society as kind of like a historians of science labor union kind of place, right? And this is going to be difficult. It's going to be a balancing act. So I wish you and the future administrators the best of luck achieving this, the right kind of balance that makes everybody feel as good as possible about the society for a long time to come. Thank you, Harun. And Helen, you want to make a wish? I think my wish would be for the long haul. It's looking ahead another 50 years and imagining the intellectual issues taking precedence on driving the ship so that careerist things and overpublishing might lower in priority and a really robust conversation that teases out difference of opinion and with the goal of solving problems, that is sort of my wish. But I also agree with the the labor union issues. Higher education is changing, and we need to help younger generations have some successes in the way we have had them. That's true. And Gabriella, you have the last word. Thank you, Fatih, for that question. I think if I was to have one wish for the society and for history of science in general, It would be one about inclusion in this moment in which inclusion is becoming a dirty word across the world for um, each scholar to be allowed to define their own research trajectory. I think uh, one of the commonalities that Helen, Harun, and I had when we were talking about our experiences was that often our work was misunderstood or, or not taken seriously. And I think something that the society in this moment of really opening and um, with open arms, new ideas and new ways of thinking 
that can expand our very understanding of what history is and how history can be done. Mm. So, well, we will work very hard to fulfill all your wishes. Oh, I'll do my best. <laughs> Thank you so much uh, for taking the time to chat.